and welcome to episode 556 of Effectively Wild, the daily podcast from Baseball Prospectus, presented by the Play Index at BaseballReference.com. I am Ben Lindbergh of Grantland.com, joined by Sam Miller of Baseball Prospectus. Hello. Hello. Hi. We're going to talk probably about some baseball. There were two more one-run games, of course. There was another extra inning game, of course. It's getting almost eerie at this point. I it think. is. Do we have an updated count? I saw one on Twitter, and I am finding it now. Matt Myers of MLB.com noted that we have now had 13 one-run games this postseason, which is evidently tied for the most ever in a postseason. He did not say which postseason had as many, but of course there are more games now, but we are only part of the way through the LCS, so there is a pretty good chance that that record will be broken. And and, mm-hmm. and that doesn't that doesn't include extra inning games that have right. uh, been decided, and it also doesn't include the six four game that was decided in the uh, Royals final at bat, which in the ninth inning, which mm-hmm. you know is obviously just as close. Yes, even even most of the games that did not end with a, a one run margin were pretty close until some point late in the game. Well, I don't know about most, but many when I, mean, I, there's only when been, I did my thing. Oh, yeah. There's only been like five. <laughs> right, yeah. Like, like literally, no exaggeration, there's only been like five. Yeah, I'm, yeah, I'm thinking of the one that was a blowout, like the, the Tigers-Orioles game that ended up being 12-3 and was like 4-3 in the eighth or something. Mm-hmm. Um, so there were there were some of those, but yeah. It continues to be a pretty incredible run for everyone, and particularly for the Royals. Ben, I have a question for you. Um, I, I I know this is really about our show and, and who we are and what we are, and I'm not sure where this show falls. I know that we are genu- generally anti-hot take, uh, so uh, this seems like something that, that would uh, be easy to have a hot take on, but on the other hand, we are pro talking about things that basically don't matter uh as though they um you know might have some sabermetric uh, significance so what do you make of the uh t-shirts t-shirts the royals taunting t-shirts are you are you up to date on this i am not well okay so first you know that uh gerard dyson taunted Mm. i guess you would say taunted the orioles by saying that uh they didn't expect the series to go back to Baltimore, which is, I guess, a fine thing to say. He but did. also that, but that he didn't think that the Orioles expected, which is <laughs> yes. a taunt. That's a taunt. I and think so he's just. I mean, he. I think that's his kind of default attitude, which I mean, I. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I find it endearing. But when I when I, I talk you. when I talk to him about your Ventura, when I was writing about your Ventura, he threw in a comment about how he could steal off your Donaventura, which yeah. uh, he just felt that he had to mention because he, he's a he's a self confident guy, right? And so that didn't raise that. Did, I don't. We didn't have to talk about that because that's mm-hmm. just Dyson. However, today in his post game press conference, Jeremy Guthrie wore a taunting T shirt mm. that said it was a blue shirt and it said with the uh, Orioles logo for the O, it said these O's ain't royal. Oh, okay. I've seen that phrase. Um, I think that was like a Twitter hashtag or something. Uh, huh. Very taunty. And uh, anyway, uh, so, uh, of course, that's uh, this is hot take zone. I don't have a hot take on whether they're taunting or not, uh, whether they, uh, they shouldn't or, uh, you know, whether they're doing a disgrace to the game. However, they know 
like they are very aware of what they're doing. They are not dumb. They know that they have only won three games and that this is going to be a terrible, terrible jinx if they lose. They know that this is going to be noticed by the Orioles. They know that the unwritten rules of the game tell you not to do this sort of thing and that if you do, they know that it's going to be up in the clubhouse and they know that the culture of the game promotes the idea that this motivates the opposing team. So they are doing this, at least Guthrie is doing this, fully aware of what he's doing, right? I mean, he Mm -hmm. is... He is breaking protocol, and I I have to assume he's not doing it frivolously. So when we talk about the Royals and we talk about their strategies and their tactics, should we start talking about the getting in their head factor? Is this a uh, does this require metrics now? Is this the new clubhouse chemistry? Is this the uh, am I going to write a magazine article for ESPN the magazine in in eighteen months about teams trying to quantify the getting in their head factor? Maybe so, but what about waking the the sleeping dog? Isn't that? I mean, is the intimidation? That, 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 that's old school. That's <laughs> old school. We're talking about the new school. The new school is getting in their head. You and your weird RBIs and your waking the sleeping dog. I'm talking about <laughs> modern baseball. Maybe so. Maybe. Maybe if you're on a seven and zero run and you can't seem to lose. Maybe you have so much intimidation going for you that at that point, you're better off pressing the advantage and going for the complete intimidation. And there's not as much downside to the sleeping dog effect. <laughs> I have to assume that the Royals are pretty clear-eyed about all of this. They have to know that they're not actually the strongest team in history. They have to know that the Orioles aren't actually an inferior team. They're too um, young to know anything. That's why they're doing Jeremy so Guthrie. well. That's why Jeremy that's... Guthrie. Jeremy <laughs> Guthrie. This is not this is not <laughs> Terrence Gore wearing this t-shirt size extra small teams t-shirt. <laughs> this is Jeremy Guthrie. He's the veteran. He's the worst player on the team, Ben. <laughs> yes. He's, he's terrible. <laughs> and he's wearing a taunting t-shirt against a superior team. And Well, this I is still his first trip to the postseason. He doesn't know how things work in October. I think that this I think that this has to be deliberate. I think this has to be uh, something that they are doing as a deliberate strategy. Yeah, maybe. I don't know. Maybe it's just the the character of the team is particularly suited to this sort of thing. I wonder whether there will be a public backlash or whether the Royals are just so so much fun that no one cares. There's already a public. Well, the public backlash. Here's the public backlash. And I don't know if this represents the public. This represents the the 105 people I follow. But this is what always happens when a nice, clean-cut Midwest boy does something like this it's always oh imagine if Puig had done it and it just <laughs> right. becomes a whole new referendum on Puig haters and it just becomes this thing about how nobody appreciates Puig all Puig is trending right now <laughs> with this <laughs> so uh that's what the backlash is going to be that's why he's the face of baseball <laughs> all right so we will take a brief detour into hot stove like <laughs> Matt, Matt Sussman tweeting about this quote honey do you want your usual four and two thirds innings is better than none t-shirt <laughs> camera zooms in on Jeremy Guthrie not tonight <laughs> everyone listening should follow Matt Sussman on Twitter because he is one of the best, the best. in baseball is, at it 
He's the best on Twitter. He is. He is. Uh, that is not an exaggeration. He is the best on Twitter. I I've said before that if I could only follow two people on Twitter, uh, <laughs> he would be the second one I would follow. And it, in fact, if I could only follow those two, or I could follow all hundred and three others, I mm-hmm. would choose the two. <laughs> yeah, I can't argue. You are with not that. one of the two. No, I shouldn't be. Good. Um, okay, so. Yes, brief detour into hot stove talk or something close to hot stove talk because Andrew Friedman is now the president of baseball operations of the Dodgers. He has gone from the, the prototypical small market team to the the or the archetypical one to the archetypical huge market team. Uh, there have been plenty of fun facts bandied about about how Andrew Friedman has never had a payroll as large as the Dodgers' payroll commitments several years from now. And so it's an interesting move. And you wrote about it at BP. And there has been lots of talk about what an Andrew Friedman on a big market team will look like. And I'm fascinated to find out. I'm sort of, as someone with no rooting interest in either team, I'm looking forward to following the the new Andrew Friedman regime because the Rays one had gotten sort of stale. We we kind of the Rays have their way of operating and uh, we don't know exactly what it is, but we we have the general idea and now we're going to get to see something completely different and see what Andrew Friedman will do with all the money that he probably has wished that he's had at times over the past several years. And so you wrote about what you think that will look like or what we might see that look like in the next couple of years, would you care to summarize? I guess my, my summary for what it will look like is that it won't look that different, that there's not a lot of difference that, well, first of all, that he is not entering an organization like the 2000 and what, what was it? 2006 or 2005 that he took over the race. Six yeah. was Madden's first year. Did he hire Madden his first year? I think so. Okay, so it's not like the 2006 Rays, where it is an organization that literally does not have the internet, as Jenna <laughs> right. Carey reported. <laughs> uh-huh. uh, uh, so um, this he's taking he's he's going into an organization that has already done a lot of uh, a lot of work to structure themselves in an intelligent way, particularly in in scouting and player development. But you know there are a lot of uh, you know there are plenty of intelligent people in that front office. They've been building good departments. Uh, we generally think of, when we hear, uh, when we think of a team's front office, we usually think of their general manager and Ned Coletti is, um, you know, nobody's idea of, uh, uh, you know, an advanced uh, progressive general manager, but he's just one in a large organization. And his boss, Stan Kasten, in a lot of ways is very progressive and very intelligent and of course, built the uh, you know the Nationals that have been in a lot of ways built the Nationals that are so good right now. I uh, built that front office, so um, it's not as though he's going into a, an organization where he's going to be able to uh, really put his stamp on everything, or where he'll even want to. The, a lot of the hard work is already done. Um, yeah, I mean the the payroll commitments, as I mentioned, are are huge. It's like two hundred million almost for next year, and then it doesn't really decline much for. The next few years after that, it's like 170, 160, because they have those huge long-term contracts. So it'll be interesting to see how much he even can do, really, uh, or how active they will be, because without 
trading some of those giant contracts. They're already at, at pretty high numbers going a few years into the into the future. Yeah. Um, but then the other thing, and, and I didn't, I don't know if I made this point, but Grant Brisby made this point really well in, in his write-up. The, the things that we associate with, with big market teams are not the things that require a lot of intelligence. Like they a little bit, and I, I think as I put it, he'll adopt some of the big market tactics while shaving off the 10% of those tactics that are gristle. But for the most part, when you're looking at how to spend your $300 million in the offseason and there's a $200 million free agent uh, there in front of you, it's like Ruben Amaro and Theo Epstein basically look at that free agent the same way. For the most part, there's not a lot of information advantage that a smart team can get out of it. Uh, mm-hmm. You sign that guy because you have the money and you sort of convince yourself that you need him this year and you know it's going to be bad uh, at the end of it. And you just hope it's not too bad. And the other thing about those moves is that the kind of the margin between um, what we think of as a good price for the guy and what he might sign for is really small, but the margin between what could happen on the low end and what could happen on the high end is massive. And so we end up arguing over like these $20 million margins over like what would or wouldn't have been a good price for Josh Hamilton. And then he's either 30 wins better than that or is replacement level for five years. Yeah, the the big market team's GMs never win those rankings that people make of like the most efficient spenders among GMs where they they rank GMs by dollars per war, you know, how many wins they got out of the money that they spent. The the big market teams, even smart ones who win a lot, never show up at the very top of those rankings. It's always Friedman or Bean or someone because they don't have the ability to sign those huge deals that often in the, the later years don't work out so well, or, or at least you've gotten the surplus from the front end of the deal, and then you have to deal with the back end. And so there's some dead weight always. Friedman never really had the ability to carry much dead weight, and now he does. Uh, so what I did identify um, almost as an afterthought uh, of the piece of sort of three places where I thought a Friedman, a Friedman regime might act or might be slightly different than uh, the Dodgers have been. One, they've been, in a lot of ways, a rotating manager over the last two decades. They've had a lot of them. They haven't been great ones. They've generally, in a lot of uh, cases, have hired managers who were kind of big celebrities before they got hired. And based on his record with the Rays, based on what we know about his manager with the Rays, um, I think we can assume that the manager that he hires will be considered an extension of the front office, that he will not be somebody who is outside the front office the way that a Joe Torre or a Don Mattingly are, but will be you know, kind of his own liaison to the club, which is what a manager should be. Uh, and also, I think that it's, I would say it's safe to assume that whoever he hires to be manager, assuming, of course, that Don Mattingly is, is replaced sometime soon, which I kind of think he will be. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that the person he hires next will probably be there for as long as he's there, um, just as he and Joe Madden coexisted for a decade uh, in somewhat unlikely ways. Um, so that's one thing. Uh, I think that you can probably, well, I, it's just speculation, but uh, based on his time in Tampa Bay, I think that uh, Friedman, uh, I think 
that what we see with big market teams a lot is that they put a lot of value at the top of their roster. So they want to get guys like Albert Pujols and Josh Hamilton, um, who uh, cost a lot, but that's your big priority. You go into the offseason, and you sort of sometimes see this, where not a lot of moves are made until a couple of the big guys go off the board, because um, teams are kind of starting from the top of their roster and then uh, seeing who they can get to fill those spots and then building from there down. And I think with Friedman um, and with I think we've seen with some other GMs who we consider similar to Friedman, um, they kind of build from the bottom up. They start with the idea that they're going to need 35 good players to make it through a season, and it's not really worth uh, signing a good guy in the first spot if it costs you your 35th, 34th, and 33rd spots. So I would expect to see slightly fewer huge market signings, not not none, certainly, but slightly fewer, and to see a bit more depth. I think that, for instance, um, you'll see you know, a team that has, well, I, I would expect... Justin Turner and Scott Vince, like... I mean, well, Justin Turner was really good. I mean, it, I know like, that's what I mean. Like, yeah, it's not like they expected Justin. It's hard to say it'll be different because Justin Turner got them through the season, and Scott Vance like got them through the first half, but mm-hmm. not that they were expecting them to. Um, and meanwhile, I don't want to say, oh, well, they'll probably invest in the bullpen because they invested <laughs> a ton in the bullpen, and I thought those guys were going to be good, and there were reasons to think that they would be good. Mm-hmm. Uh, but yeah, basically, and I. I mean, in a lot of ways, the Dodgers have signed almost everybody they could. So they've had depth over the last few years, and it broke down for reasons other than not planning. But uh, anyway, that's another thing. I think that you'll see, you know, I guess just a nod to the Tampa Bay style of building with some really savvy, smaller signings and with a lot more of an emphasis on positional flexibility and that kind of thing. Uh, than you've seen from the Dodgers or than you normally see from big market teams. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the third thing is very specific. A.J. Ellis uh, is beloved, but he can't frame at all. <laughs> and I think it's safe to say that Friedman likes a framer. And so it seems to me that the Dodgers signing Russell Martin is the most obvious thing that will happen in the next 12 months. Like, more obvious than you having a birthday <laughs> is in the next 12 months is is Russell Martin signing with the Dodgers. Yeah. I, I wanted to find a better, more splashy acquisition via trade. Uh, I proposed, jokingly, Puig for Lucroy uh, mm-hmm. as a possibility, but I think that it's just going to be Russell Martin. And that'll be interesting, because one of the first things that came out of Dodgers camp after the end of the season, after they were eliminated, was Clayton Kershaw advocating for bringing A.J. Ellis back. And you can kind of understand why. I mean, they, they came up together, and they're friends, and... And Ellis has been the primary catcher for the last few seasons, and and those have been good seasons for the Dodgers and for Kershaw. But maybe he just doesn't know <laughs> what it's like to to throw to someone who is better. I mean, maybe Ellis does things that we're not giving him credit for. Maybe he's a great game caller, but he doesn't do very well in the framing stats. You're right. And so I would guess that since Clayton Kershaw is signed forever, he will get over the departure of AJ Ellis and the first time he throws to Russell Martin uh, he will he will be satisfied with that arrangement and just <laughs> just got it by the way Ben just got the t-shirt just got the joke oh the these O's ain't Royals yeah just got it <laughs> so you, you thought it was just a not a clever 
slogan. It was I mean, just... I assumed that there was a, some reason for it, but I didn't quite pick up the rhyme. <laughs> and you mentioned in your Friedman article the, the Molina arrangement. And so I guess that's kind of the difference. The, the Rays had their good framing catcher, but they had a framing catcher who had all kinds of warts and was a, a terrible hitter and couldn't play every day and wasn't a good blocker. And now they can just buy at the top of the market, sort of. They can get the good framer who is also a good hitter and a good blocker and, and durable and does everything well. So they don't have to piece together their Hannigan-Molina arrangement where they're they're getting something good out of it, but because they're, they're so much bad associated with it, now they can just get the best of, of all worlds. Yeah. But anyway... That I uh, I answered your question, but I don't think it's the most compelling question. The the, the real summary of my piece, largely, um, was that Friedman uh, as a hire uh, means a lot more for what it says than for what it actually changes. And what it says is that you already had a team that was interested in all the things that Friedman represents, and that's the most important thing. Even if they if you knew that they had pursued Friedman offered Friedman everything that Friedman had ultimately accepted, um, pursued him just as aggressively as they did, but that at the last minute he had decided that uh, he didn't want to leave Tampa, it, in a way, that would be 90% of the battle. Like just, con- just showing me that would be pretty impressive. And I think we already knew that the Dodgers as an organization had made great strides uh, since the sale. I, I think Stan Kasten is is great. He's uh, you know one of the one of the few people that I would choose to to head my team if I had one. Um, very short list, and uh, so you already and you know they had invested in in a lot of international scouting and a lot of player development, um, and so there was already reasons to think that the Dodgers were were getting smart. Uh, and I hate to use that phrase, but you know that's what we talk about. That's what we say. Um, and between that and their financial advantage and the fact that they have already put together a, uh, a pretty good system that's getting better and better and should be, I mean, it's probably going to be, you know, an elite system over the next few years, I would guess, uh, despite this, the disadvantages of being a big market team. Um, they, I forget what I was going to say, but uh, they were already going to be really good. Mm-hmm. Um, and the, all signs were pointing at them being really good. And this is a kind of, uh, you know, a, a big confirmation of that. Um, and, uh, and it kind of amps up the level of how good we think we'll be. But I don't know, frankly, honestly, to be totally honest, there's probably 15 guys that I would consider more or less interchangeable in a position like that with Friedman, mm-hmm. maybe a hundred guys, but probably certainly probably 15 I think in a position like Tampa Bay's, Friedman's skills stand out more, and I'm not sure there are 15 guys. There might only be three that I would put on his level in that position. But with the Dodgers, you know, you could you could pick up a name out of a hat. There's so many smart guys who could handle that job, I think. Yeah, and it's possible. I mean, I saw cer- cer- certain people say that Friedman maybe has small market skills and that they aren't suited to a big market or they won't benefit him as much as they did. And it, I mean, it's possible. I would think that many of the same skills apply in both markets would work well for any team. 
there are maybe certain skills that are more valuable to the Dodgers and to the than to the Rays and vice versa. I mean, maybe if you're if you're the Dodgers, maybe one of the the most valuable skills for a GM is to be a good uh, like welcoming committee to be really good in a meeting with a free agent when he tours the league and mm-hmm. everyone makes their pitch. Yeah. If you can be the most persuasive GM in the room and also offer as much money as as any other team, but if you can if you can talk him into liking your vision for the team, then that's a big asset, and that's a bigger asset in Los Angeles than it was in Tampa Bay, where you weren't even going to go after any of the top free agents. So we don't really know whether he has that skill. Um, so that's something we'll find out. But all the other stuff, I would imagine uh, he's he's just as capable of evaluating expensive talent as inexpensive talent, I would think. So I would imagine that much of the skill will will carry over. But you're right. I mean, whether they had made this move or not, and really either, even if they hadn't expressed interest in making their move, I think I think you're right that it it only improves the outlook that they were interested in becoming the type of team that would employ Andrew Friedman. But even if they hadn't, they entered this year as the the top projected team. They were one of the best teams in baseball. There's no reason to think that they wouldn't have continued to be. They've got the giant TV deal. They've got the huge payroll. So really, if you had to pick a team before this move, we then, did. Yes, we did. And you and I did. <laughs> right. Based if you, on nothing but their on the, based on nothing but their payroll, we picked this team. Yes, and that was pre Friedman. So post Friedman, yeah. <laughs> the outlook is even brighter, I suppose, but probably not by quite as much as one would think. Even even just the fact that Friedman is not probably as far above average or above the median GM as he was when he was hired in Tampa Bay. A lot of the things that he implemented in Tampa Bay, a lot of the ideas he had have been copied, have spread everywhere. Maybe he still has a, a bunch of tricks up his sleeve that he's been saving or, or that he will continue to come up with, but maybe not. Maybe, maybe his best ideas, maybe he didn't save them. And why would he save them? He probably put them into practice right away and, and they get copied quickly. And so maybe the difference between Friedman and Anyone else the Dodgers could have picked uh, off the top of the pile of best GM candidates would have been close to as good. But it's the richest team, and if not the smartest person, then one of the smartest. So it's it's good news for Dodgers fans and bad news for everyone else, I guess. Bad news also, I would say, for the off-season hot take machine. I would I think that if if Ned were running the show. Uh, you could have imagined a whole offseason of uh, Yasiel Puig uh, trade talks. Trade yeah. talks, and now it just seems like that'll get shut right down. <laughs> well, that's not the worst thing in the world. Maybe, maybe with a new manager and a new GM, we will not have those columns anymore. And when the Royals wear their T-shirts, no one will even think to bring up Puig anymore. We should, by the way. There's been a lot of talk about Paul De Podesta. And there, in fact, there were a lot of, uh, it seemed like every, every piece about this and every response to this was about the idea that finally the, you know, we'll see the, it's like we've said, like, like they said with the Mets, except the Mets never had money, but the money ball with money idea. Right. Mm-hmm. And of course the Dodgers had Paul De Podesta. Uh, Paul De Podesta did like, I, I think a, a lot of really good moves. He seemed to be putting together a good team. The team won after he left. 
Um, I think that's right. I think that they won after he left. Yeah. Maybe they won right at the end. I can't remember. I can never remember when the Dodgers won or lost. I know they they won after Dan Evans left, right? Mm-hmm. So uh, yeah, a lot of a lot of the players that he yeah. brought there were were important. Anyway, uh, yeah, Dan, yeah. As I recall, Dan Evans left and uh, a a great team to his to his uh, follower, and then I, as I recall, Deep Podesta left a pretty good team to his follower. Anyway, that, I could have just looked this up. Point is. Uh, they they did this. It didn't really work. It didn't create a uh, massive, uh, you know, uh, dynasty in L.A. or anything like that. And DePodesta essentially got run out of town in a lot of ways. The 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 um, aggressively non-conventional wisdomy trade that he made at the deadline uh, to get Hesop Choi and Brad Penny for Paul Leduca uh, was was ripped. Still is ripped by by many people. Uh, and the media hated him and uh, and really never gave him a break uh, and uh, eventually fired. So uh, there was a lot of talk today about, uh, well, there was some talk that ignored the fact that this had already been tried, but there was some talk that made a big deal about the fact that this had already been tried. I think the, probably the answer is somewhere in the middle. I don't, I don't think that the media issues that plagued De Podesta will be an issue at all, actually. I think that it will be a complete non-issue. L.A. is... Still, obviously, a big market, and the media matters. But a lot of the people who were there ten years ago are gone. Some of the people who were very vocal against De Podesta just aren't really that big a deal anymore mm-hmm. uh, in the culture. Um, and more than anything, though, I think much, much more than anything is just that the baseline for uh, for kind of stat head acceptance is so, so, so much higher. I mean, it's like infinitely higher. I mean, if you think back to two thousand four. I mean, OPS was a joke, mm-hmm. and to be anything statty made you super weird. And now it's just not like that at all. And there are a couple people who are knee-jerky about this stuff out there in the world, but most aren't. And I mean, I know like a lot of the people, a lot of the guys who cover the Dodgers are good writers, fair writers, um, and uh, I just don't really see it being an issue. So mm-hmm. something else. Yep. Uh, 2003 was Dan Evans' last year as GM of the Dodgers, and then 2004 was De Podesta's first, and they made the playoffs that year, 2004. Mm-hmm. 2005, they did not make the playoffs. 2006 was Coletti's first year, and they made the playoffs that year also. So right. the, year, the year after De Podesta, they made the playoffs. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so that was his team. He, mm-hmm. he left a good team. Yep. That, yeah, they, they both that, did. Any trade was pretty good. Yes, <laughs> <laughs> okay, so that's Friedman. We've got more more baseball tomorrow, today, if you're listening on Wednesday. I don't know how much more there is to say about the Royals. They they won their game in a sort of a regular season Royals way, or they, they didn't score eight runs like they have a few times this postseason after not having done so for over a month at the end of the regular season. So they didn't score a whole lot, but they played excellent defense again and they scraped out a one run win. I mean they're they're what I mean I wonder what their their run differential for this postseason is. 7. That yeah, that's their win differential. They're... Yeah, it would be awesome if it were 7. Well, what? <laughs> they've won they won one game by 2 and then they won one game by like 5, right? Didn't they win 8 to 3 in game 3? Yes. So and then all the others were one run. So mm-hmm. uh, so that would be 4 5 so 12. 
Yeah, I mean, it's the 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 margins of victory would not suggest as commanding a performance or as dominant a performance as they have had seven and zero. But it's been fun to watch, and I mean, it will. Uh, I don't know what to say about it. Did we learn anything from it? It was just, I mean, Ned Yost managed well. No one had complaints about what Ned Yost did. He took Jeremy Guthrie out, and he put in Jason Fraser, and then the big guys and it worked the defense and the bullpen and i don't know it's been a successful blueprint so far so uh yeah that was a, that was as boring as a 2-1 game could be yeah it wasn't great it felt like the royals were it felt like they were ahead the uh-huh. whole way even though they weren't mm-hmm. um and uh, there wasn't a lot of uh there wasn't a lot of threats no any anything about the giants game Jeez, I was way off because they won the extra inning game by three. I forgot about that. I was counting mm. that as a one. And then they've won two games by two. Uh-huh. And so, in fact, it's I think it's 16. I think their run differential is 16, which is actually not that bad. for. Well, it's, I guess it's not that bad for seven games. It's great for seven games, but if you're 7-0, and oh, it's not that much. Mm-hmm. No, nothing about the Giants game. Go back to the Royals game, though. Mm-hmm. Um, there is a, a, uh, a, a meme being established about how none of this would have occurred uh, if not for fill in the blank in the Oakland's in the Oakland game, yeah. uh, you know, one hit here, uh, Bob Melvin's decision there, and that's all very true. Uh, I have no objection to it as a uh, curiosity. However, does that? I mean, uh, l- let me uh, let me back up. When the Orioles go to the World Series, and maybe when they win the World Series, there will be many narratives. Uh, about how inevitable it was, or about mm-hmm. how you know good the Royals were, uh, and how we should have uh, you know how Dayton Moore's genius. Yes, that seems to be the fear, at least that I was seeing during the game, is that as fun as this has been, we will all pay for it because somehow the Royals' victory will set back the the state of understanding of baseball by years. Uh huh. Right, and so that would be one extreme. But on the other extreme is, is and I'm reading too much. I don't think the people who are tweeting this necessarily mean it this way, but is the uh, idea that they didn't, that because this, they so nearly missed this, because they barely, barely, barely deserved to beat the A's, and if they hadn't beat the A's, then their whole season would have been looked at as a, you know, uh, yeah kind of qualified success at best mm-hmm. that they don't really deserve to be looked at as a model of anything and i don't know if that's true or not um however they did win the next six and russell carlton wrote a thing about on playoff myths uh that ran tuesday at baseball Prospectus. Uh, and one of the myths is x team doesn't have what it takes to win in the postseason and and as he kind of lays out logically if the Nationals lose a series, the first series, well, they're they're 0 and 1, and so we might say, oh, well, they don't have what it takes to win to you know to win in the postseason. But we don't know what they would have done in the next one or the next one, you know, the next series. Like you mm-hmm. just like maybe they would have beat the Cardinals, maybe they would have beat the uh, whoever is in the World Series, but we never get to see that play out. We only get the one coin flip for them, and sort of in the same way, yes, you could say that the Royals wouldn't have gotten to play these next six games uh if they had lost to the a's but doesn't it isn't it great that they did didn't we learn about them because we got to see these six isn't it better that we got to see these six and mm-hmm. draw some lessons from these royals 
Can we draw? Sure. Is there anything to draw from this? I mean, come on. <laughs> I, I, don't I don't know, know what to say. Yeah, I, I don't know. There are, there Ask are, me at there the are, end of the postseason, but even then, I will probably shrug. This feels like the first game that the Royals won that was distinctly Royals. You know, every yeah. other game, mm-hmm. every other game, it feels like they've won because. Well, actually, I was I, maybe I have to take it back. Jeremy Guthrie sucks, <laughs> and <laughs> relying on Jeremy Guthrie to to pitch is uh, to pitch successfully is not the Royals' game plan this year. They. Jeremy Guthrie pitched poorly for them, but it was the closest to it. They didn't win on a home run, basically. Mm-hmm. Yeah. They won because they got to the seventh inning with a lousy offense and a narrow lead, and then Herrera, Davis, Holland. And Dyson. Not and that Dyson. he played a pivotal role today, but yes. No, but, well, he did. He did play, play a pivotal role because there's no way Aoki catches that ball in the eighth inning that Kane caught. Oh, the, the foul ball in the corner? Exactly. Yeah. Every time, every time Kane catches a ball, I add a half a run to Dyson's <laughs> UZR. Uh huh. Yeah, that's that's possibly fair. I wrote about it today, Tuesday at Grantland. If anyone wants to go look at that, I looked at that combination of Gordon and Dyson and Kane, and obviously small samples. Even if you combine 2013 and 2014, uh, it's I don't know what it was, something like 500 innings combined between those two seasons with those guys all playing simultaneously in the same outfield. But the numbers in that small sample are quite impressive, both compared to other Royals outfield alignments and compared to every other team's outfield. In those 500-ish innings, the Royals have had the best BABIP allowed or the lowest BABIP allowed on fly balls of any team in baseball and the second lowest slugging percentage allowed on fly balls of any team in baseball while playing in the the park with the biggest outfield half the time, Mm -hmm. which is really impressive. So my headline for the game one recap, the best defensive outfield in history, do you have a position on that? Specifically specifically the Gordon-Dyson-Kane alignment. Yeah, I don't know. I, I I don't know. I'm I am on board with it being the best in baseball over the last couple of years, but whether it's been the best ever, whether you could find a combination of 500 innings at some point over the last many decades of three outfielders who are just as good, I'm probably at some point. But it is fun to watch. Somebody suggested Cromartie, Dawson, Valentine of the uh-huh. uh, like late 70s Expos, and that's the best. That's the most compelling one that's been offered to me. None of the other ones I've seen offered have been all that compelling, which isn't to say that there isn't one. But the thing that just gets me about this outfield is that you can make the case that Kane might be the best regular center fielder in baseball, Mm -hmm. and he gets pushed aside. Yeah. Like, that's (laughs) incredible. I don't think he's probably the best, but he's top three or four. And he has to leave his position to go play right field which is like where Adam Dunn has played sometimes mm-hmm. <laughs> in his career uh, in order to make way for a better defender. That's and just I, right there an incredible thing. And that's uh, how many teams do you think would do that with the same personnel? Because I, I tweeted something during the game about how maybe Nedios doesn't get right, enough yeah. credit for yeah. deploying those assets like that. Because really, it's not like Aoki is a bad player. He gets pinch run for and he gets subbed for on defense. 
and he's what an above average runner probably and oh dude le- an average <laughs> defender i mean he's a he's good when at those I, things when i did my best defensive outfield in history thing i i looked at some of the outfields that statistically could claim to have also been the mm-hmm. best defensive outfield in history and one of the ones that could be like one of like 10 that has any credible shot is last year's brewers which had aoki at right field <laughs> right yeah, he's That's not. How good Aoki is. Yes, he's good. He's good, and Kane is great in center, and and yeah, and you have Dyson, this light hitting bench guy, who gets brought into every game in the late innings when the Royals are tied or ahead, and I wonder how many teams would do that. How many teams with Dyson would use him so regularly to sub for? Players who are good at the things that Dyson is good at, just not quite as good. Yeah, uh, I, I I would guess not too many because a lot of managers would think, well, we've got a really good guy who does that. I don't want to mess with the starter's head by telling him he's not as good as this bench guy. I don't want to make all these moves I don't have to make when we've got perfectly good options out there. Um, so I, I don't know how many teams would make those moves. Yeah, and to move Kane... Not putting Dyson in in right even yeah. does it to two to two of your veterans. Although I don't know, I wondered about that. Dyson seems to have a good arm. He threw out uh, Colin Cowgill in the ALCS mm-hmm. with a great throw, but maybe he doesn't have the strength, the arm strength for right field. I don't I don't know. Mm. Yeah, I'm not sure. I'm not sure if I I just I don't know the answer to that. So mm-hmm. maybe that's yeah. why. But. Something to put in the the positive side of the ledger for Yost is as rigid as he is with his bullpen rules, he is not rigid at all with his his pinch running and defensive substituting rules. Although he sure. he doesn't yeah. pinch hit, but but maybe that's because of the players he has partly too. I'm sure Ned Yost is walking his dog right now, listening to this, and <laughs> finally feels validated with his. No. Seven and zero record and two bloggers. I think he decided to stay time. at Dave's tonight. He's not uh-huh. walking his dog. Okay, so that is it for today. The Royals have a chance today, Wednesday, to make some how sweep it is headlines for tomorrow. So, I already saw a tweet. You did. Uh-huh. Uh, it was a, a yeah non ironic one. No, it was a non ironic one. Although it was not how sweep it is. It was sweep dreams. Mm. But not how sweet it is. But it, they'll be there. Yeah. Okay. And there's also a game on the NL side. So enjoy baseball. We will be back to talk about it tomorrow. Please keep sending us emails at podcast at baseballperspectus.com. And please keep supporting our sponsor by going to baseballreference.com, subscribing to the Play Index using the coupon code BP, and getting the discounted price of $30 on a one-year subscription.